I remember when I was at a church once, nobody knew me, and I got the best introduction that I had ever been given because they asked if I would introduce myself. <laughs> now, I'm not going to do that for our first speaker tonight, Jacques Gabizon. If he wants to add anything to what I have to say regarding him, I'm going to give him that opportunity. But our first speaker tonight who's going to talk on the Feast of Purim is a Jewish believer who was born, are you ready for this, in Casablanca, Morocco, North Africa. He is currently the pastor of Beth Ariel Congregation in Montreal, Canada. He is married to his wife, Sharon, who happens to be with us, and she is at the back table there. Wave your hand, Sharon. She will be the one in charge of if you would like to purchase books, and we encourage you to do that. But they have been married for 40 years. They have four children and nine grandchildren. Now, here's what's interesting. Jacques is not just the grandson, but also the great-grandson and the great-great-grandson of the rabbis from Casablanca. He immigrated from North Africa to Canada in 1968, and it was there that he met not only his Messiah, Jesus, but also his wife. He has a ministry where he is on the radio in Canada, ministering to over 100,000 Jews in that area of Montreal, and he's also on oneplace.com. Let's open our hearts and let's open our Bibles as Jacques comes. God bless you as you come, my brother. God bless you. Thank you. Good evening and shalom, shalom. Shalom. And you know, I want to tell you it's a privilege to be here to share his wonderful word with you. I'm even more excited as we're going to look into prophecies. Prophecies, for this is a subject which is becoming a rarity in modern preaching. Let me begin with a story. You know, I read in the biography of A.J. Ironside, a commentator during the 1930s who was a Canadian and became a biblical scholar, especially concerning prophecies. And it's interesting to see how his love for this subject developed. He was saved when he was about 15 years old, and at that time he was challenged by one of his teachers who attacked the Bible and his faith as a Christian. What his teacher told them is that if you had been born in a Hindu family, you would believe the Vedic scriptures, just as now you believe in the, script, in, in the Bible. If you had been born into a Buddhist family, you would accept the teaching of Buddha, just like you accept the teaching of the scriptures. And if you had been born in the Muslim family, you would believe in the Quran, and so on and so forth. That challenged Ironside. What he did was that he went into the city library and asked the lady at the desk where he could find these religious books. He was led to this 10-foot-long shelf that contained all these books, about 38 of them, but that did not discourage the young Ironside. He took three books at a time. It took a month to read them all. And what were his conclusions? First, he said that he had the wrong idea about some of these great religions. He discovered that there were many very fine morals and religious values taught in these books. However, he said that all this truth and more could be found in our Bible. The second thing that made a tremendous impression on him was that in all these volumes, there was not one definite prophetic statement that had been, ever been fulfilled. There were attempts to prophecies, but nothing to compare with the prophecies of the Bible. 
This experience made Aaron Seid one of the most forefront writers on biblical prophecies. This man's conclusion, I want to tell you, are right on, because this is precisely what God tells us to do, compare and challenge other faith with biblical prophecies. These powerful words are found in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 22 to 24. Let them bring forth, says the Lord, and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Ask them. Ask them if they have any prophecies concerning the future, or better, if they had prophecies that were given in the past and were fulfilled, so that we may test and see if the, there's any validity in their religion. And the Bible, I want to tell you, is open for the test. Apart from the many prophecies we're going to see today and tomorrow, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, for instance, and those prophecies even naming these countries that are now at the border of Israel even before they became a country. There are these other prophecies, the messianic prophecies, for instance, which predicted hundreds of years before the, the first coming, the birthplace of Jesus in Micah 5.1, to his second coming, you know, when he comes, it says in Zechariah 12.10 that they shall recognize the one they have pierced. And also in the chapter of the crucifixion, Psalm 22, verse 16, it says, they shall pierce my hand and my feet, a thousand years before the first century. And there are many of them we can use to bless our neighbors and direct them to God. It was Charles Ryrie once wrote that according to the laws of chance, it would require 200 billion earth populated with 4 billion people each to come up with one person whose life can, could fulfill 100 accurate prophecies without any errors in sequence. Yet the scriptures records over 100 prophecies that were fulfilled at Christ's first coming. The Bible passes the test with flying colors. No other religious book can, for the simple reason that it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh of God. So prophecies are something Christians, Jews and Gentiles, should get hold of and come to know more intimately, especially in these times. And this evening, we're looking at a very important subject of prophecy, Israel. Israel and the preservation of the Jewish people because biblical prophecies have not yet finished their course and Israel finds itself at the center of end-time eschatology. And the book we're about to look into speaks of prophecies about the preservation despite the calculated national agenda to annihilate the Jewish people. From this book of Esther comes this yearly Jewish feast, Purim, which is a joyful holiday because it celebrates God's continual protection on Israel. This is what the Jewish people do every year. And we have chosen to start with Purim because according to the Hebrew calendar, this feast, Purim, falls next Monday, the 9th of March, until the evening of Tuesday, the 10th. So this feast is not part of the seven feasts in Leviticus 23. It was instituted by Mordechai and Esther. And so on these days, there are great celebrations in synagogues throughout the world. They organize lively parties. The children dress up with very colorful costumes depicting either Esther or Mordechai or even the villain of the story, who is Haman. Now let's look into this great feast. Let's open our scriptures to the book of Esther. Not an easy book to find. 
a book we find by faith, usually. <laughs> <laughs> so going from right to left, we have Psalms, Job, then appears this exceptional book of Esther containing a blend of both tragic and comic, actually, situations. While Esther deals with this various serious problem of anti-Semitism and plots of mass murder, it also is very comic. It's actually funny, as unexpected even arise out of nowhere because God is there. You know, in the overall poem speaks of God's sovereignty, of his supremacy and dominion over history, all of history. Even though, ironic as it is, his name, did you know that his name is not mentioned at all, at all in this book? In fact, Esther is the only book of the scripture where the name of God is not mentioned, perhaps because this book is wholly concerned with the Jewish people outside of the land of Israel, in the diaspora, among the nations, just like they are today. But this does not mean that God forgot about Israel. While his name is not mentioned, we will see that his presence is strongly felt at every, in every verse almost. So the story in the, in the book is very simple. It's about a person of great importance in the Middle Persian kingdom who filled with hatred against one Jew, Mordechai, decided to annihilate all the Jews. In order to achieve his evil scheme, this man casted lots to decide the day this Holocaust will take place. The word for lots in Hebrew is Purim. This is the name of this feast. It is commemorated again every year to remind Israel that there will always be those individuals or nations who would seek to annihilate them. But God will always preserve them. Esther is very much a message to the anti-Semite. This fight, actually, we're going to see that this fight against anti-Jewish sentiment is emphasized in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Just one verse in there. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Do you notice that how personally God considers anti-Semitism? From the plural of blessing, I will bless those who bless you, he goes to the singular of the curse. I will curse him who curses you, for he will seek him who will freely persecute and abuse his people, for it is this truth which powerfully comes out of the book of Esther. And there is a great practical aspect to grasp from these writings for all Christians. Many believers, and assuredly non-believers, might wonder, where is God when there's so much suffering, when there's persecution, when there's sickness? He is very much involved for in the scriptures. The scriptures tells us that he suffers with us, right? He's not the cause of our problems. We are the cause of our problems. Isaiah 63, 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, afflicted, right? Isaiah 63, this is the, almost the end of the book of Isaiah. After all the curses and so on, he says, you know what? I was with you every time you suffered. So this book then is for us. It will teach us about God's omnipresence, especially when one of his son or daughter is in trouble. And it will tell us about his infinite and limitless love. So let's go to the text right away. Well, the subject matter is very serious. The book begins with a very ironic and really an unusual situation. As you open up the first page, you are brought into the lavish lifestyle of the king of Persia of the time, King Ahasuerus. Reading the account, one may even be surprised by the highly descriptive words used in detailing all the items found in the king's sumptuous palace. 
You may even wonder if this is really the Bible you are reading or an account from the annals of the history of Persia. But there's a message for us in there. Let's begin to, to try to figure out what is the message and read verses 1 to 4. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, even King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. That, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. Even when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. This, I want to tell you, is a great introduction to King Ahasuerus, you know, concerning what he achieved, what he owned. First, we see that he organized a feast lasting 180 days. That is six months plus one week. Who can feast for six months, right? And how much can you eat, right, every day? It is so overdone, by the way, that some rab rabbinic commentators imagine that the guests of these 127 provinces needed to tip the waiters to keep them quiet so as not to alert the king that they were not able to finish their plate or their drink. As we read the account, one may wonder why the Bible so superbly describes this monarchy. It speaks in verse 4 of a glorious kingdom, but when these two words, glorious kingdom, kavot and machoto, are used together, they are usually described God's kingdom in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. Furthermore, two other words used together in here in Esther chapter 1, tifre Gedalato, that is the splendor of his majesty, are attributed only to God elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures as used by David, for instance, in First Chronicles. And yet here they are used by a foreign king. In addition to this, the account enhances even the more the great splendor of his kingdom by giving us a tour of his palace with pinpointed details. Why? See the, descript the description we have in verse 6. There's something in there we should not miss. It says, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver roads and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster turquoise and white and black marble. You know, a Jew of uh, that era reading this text would surely acquire a bitter test, test that is from this information. Were these not the same colors and curtain of fine linen used at the temple of God in Jerusalem, which was destroyed a little over a century earlier, just before the Jews were taken to captivity at this very place of Shushan? And have you noticed the main color here, the blue, the purple, the white? These are some of the main colors of the temple. Just in the book of Exodus alone, when Moses gave the instruction to build the tabernacle of God, these colors were mentioned together some 30 times. What are they doing here embellishing the palace of a foreign king who is living in peace and prosperity? The second Targum of Esther, Targum Sheni. The Targum are translations from the Hebrew to Aramaic done not too long after Esther. This one introduces the kingdom of Hasuerus, and this is what it says. This rabbi says, this, this throne was neither his nor his father's, but King Solomon's throne. It is King Solomon's temple. For they recognize, he recognized the same elements. It continues by saying that when some of the people of Israel saw the vessels and all these colors, they wept 
and they wailed. Because they recognized in the descriptions their lost temple. Something has gone wrong. Something has definitely gone wrong in the history of Israel in here. For in these first nine verses of Esther, we see that was supposed to be God's splendor in the temple is actually given to a foreign king. In fact, what happened in there at that time is what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles in Luke 21, 24. The times of the Gentiles is the period of time between the first diaspora in 586 BC to the second coming of the Messiah, as you can see it in the chart. During this period of time, Israel did not have jurisdiction over the Temple Mount, and most of the time they would be in the diaspora. Today, the majority of Jews are outside of the land of Israel. As you can see, 586 BC, the Babylonian, you have the church age. Then the rapture, then the seven-year period, then a thousand years for the messianic times. The book of Esther brings us right at the door of the times of the Gentile. By the way, the word diaspora is the Greek word for dispersion, describing primarily the Jews living beyond the land of Israel. Now that it began some 2,500 years ago does not mean that God foresaw, forsook or forgot about the Jews. Esther is about to answer, actually, this question. Now, who is King Ahasuerus? He is the head of the second empire of Daniel's stat statue. That is one of them. He is king of the Medo-Persian empire, a very powerful one, as you can see in the next slide. <laughs> you can... So Daniel the prophet saw this empire as a bear which subdued all the nations around, big and ferocious. But the story is only beginning as we move on into the story. The veil is slowly lifting and the true reality of this kingdom is revealed. Daniel spoke of these empires, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and then the Antichrist empire. And so the Persian one, this is under whom Esther was. So he was a very powerful king and a very powerful, uh, if you want, kingdom. Now what comes next in Esther is truly unexpected. The big bear meets his match. It's not another empire, but rather another bear, a female bear, his wife. <laughs> A woman who defiantly stood her ground against the whole Medo-Persian empire. I'm telling you, this is fun to read, the book of Esther. This is ironic, for in the history of these people, you don't hear much of the role of the woman. However, in Esther, you do. In this book, there's not one wife which stands out and who takes front stage, but four of them, and powerful one. So let's meet the first one, Vashti, the king's wife. Vashti is an exceptionally courageous woman who refused to let her husband, the great king, abuse her. With her, the story changes drastically and suddenly with the, sum the sumptuous palace and the 127 provinces became smaller. They become smaller and insignificant. Vashti in the Persian language means beautiful. And she must have been because her husband asked her to close the six-month and one-week celebration with a dance. It was to be the pièce de résistance, right? The culmination of all this grandeur the king was showing off. And he wanted to impress his king, as we read in verse 11 of chapter 1. It says, to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But he was in for a big surprise. 
Vashti refused to show up. This, I want to tell you, was a tragedy because no one refuses the great and powerful king anything, even less a woman, even less his wife. And this created a most humiliating situation in the Medo Persian society. Now, the story begins to look like our Bible, by the way. Okay? So, the, the Medo Persian historical records would never record such situations. This is, I want to tell you, the difference between the history in the Bible and the other nations. Those of the scriptures are written by God. This is why we think that the Jews are the worst. They're not the worst. They're like us, right? They're like everybody else, right? Those in the scriptures are written by God. Therefore, the stories are open, sincere, and true concerning the, the, the frailty of men. Not so with the history of other nations. You know, reading them is like reading the history of unfailing superman. But there is only one hero in the Bible, right? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Yeshua Mashiach. And here, Vashti's action had such an unexpected impact on the empire that the king's advisor were afraid that her refusal will cause a revolution in the kingdom of Persia by influencing other women. See what they decreed. In fact, they decreed a new law in verse 22. They said that every man should be the master of his house. Right? That's funny but because we are talking here about the most powerful kingdom of the time who could not subdue their women. This is a major failure in their own standard, by the way. Bravo for the Persian women. They are powerful. This is how the chapter ends, from glory to nothing. Right? As for the name Ahasuerus, you know, this is the name that is only found in the scriptures. It is believed to be the Persian king, which was uh, Khazar Yasha. From the Greek is Xerxes, but why did they call him Ahasuerus? This is what the rabbi asked, right? So some rabbi noticed that his name strangely sounds like the Hebrew head and another Hebrew ache. In fact, both the words, okay, for head and ache, and this are in the word Ahasuerus. So the Midrash on Esther simply calls him King Headache, right? <laughs> and the whole matter was not easy for him because he was deeply in love in fact, with Vashti, and could not forget her. This is how the Bible portrays him. The text presents him as a mighty, sentimental bear. See chapter 2, how it opens up, verse 1. It says, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, that she, what she had done, and what she had been decreed against her. Okay, the verb remember, Okay, is in the Hebrew tense koal. Okay, in this way, the verb describes an inner mental act, a time of pondering and thinking. Ahasuerus could not stop thinking about her. After all, you know, they took off his wife. So to soothe his unbearable heartbreak, they began to look for a replacement, and this is when Esther comes into the picture. She is the second of the four wives found in the book of Esther. This Jewish woman was instrumental in saving the Jewish people from annihilation. Her other name is Hadassah, meaning Myrtle. Esther is believed to have been a Babylonian name representing the goddess Ishtar, or from the Persian word for star, Tsara. But more appropriately, it may be from the Hebrew Seter, which means something that is hidden, something that is protected, as she and her people were actually protected in this kingdom. Of her character and physical beauty, the Spirit of God testifies in Esther 2.7 that 
the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And this God-given beauty and charisma opened the door for the king's palace for her to come in. So here we come to the heart of the story where we are going to meet two other individuals who play a big role, Mordechai and Haman. Now Mordechai's name and Paul's name have the same meaning. Right? Both name means little man, short man. One in Greek, the other one in Persian language. And both were from which tribe? Tribe of Benjamin. And both were giants of the faith, as we're going to see with Mordechai. So Mordechai was Esther's cousin. He raised her when she, was, when she became an orphan. Like Daniel and his three friends, this man Mordechai, while in a foreign land, was abiding by the law of God and refused to worship any other than the God of Israel. It was his faith which unleashed a first persecution against the Jews in the diaspora. He refused to bow down to a man called Haman. Now see how this happened. Look at Esther chapter 3, verse 2. It says, And all the king's servants who were with the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. And so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordechai would not bow or pay homage. Right? Notice the, word, the two words, to bow and pay homage. It literally means that they bend down and bow down to the floor, something they did for deities. Human, actually, now a human that is demanded that people would do this for him. Now, who was Haman? This is important. He was second in command in the kingdom of Persia, but he wasn't a Persian himself. In history, the Persians were often favorable to the Jews. They lived well together, and it was Cyrus who allowed the first remnant of Israel to come back to their land after the 70-year Babylonian exile. As for this Haman, we learn in chapter 3, verse 2, that he is an Agagite. The Agagite were descendants of King Agag, who was a descendant of the Amalekite. And the Amalekite were descendants of Esau. Esau himself. The Targum and Josephus call Haman an Amalekite. And the Talmud connects him directly with Esau. They have a story. They say that they called him Haman, the slave who sold himself to Mordechai for a loaf of bread. Actually, he never did that, really. But this is their way of connecting Esau to Haman. Now, Amalek was a descendant of Esau, whose sons, like the Edomites, were constantly harassing Israel throughout biblical history, and I believe up to today. Now, deeply hurt that Mordechai did not bow down, Haman went to complain to the king. Now, pay close attention to his words in chapter 3, verse 8. These words really sum up what anti-Semites have said since then and even today. 3.8 says, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from the other people's, and they do not keep the laws, the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain, to let them live. He was not only to take revenge on Mordechai, but now all Jews from the kingdom, from all the 127 provinces, were to die. Why all of them? This is where it doesn't make sense. This is the spirit of anti-Semitism. And in verse 13, he asked that letters were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all the Jews. I want to tell you, Haman was obsessed with the killing of all the Jews in the kingdom. 
This, I want to tell you, is a satanic plot. For if he succeeded at that time, maybe Jesus would not have come at all. Right? This is what the forces of evil wanted since the beginning, and this is why the ancestors of the people of Jesus were always under attack, even today. There we find the root of anti-Semitism. As its source, it is an attack on God's sovereignty. Like Herod, who also was from the same ancestry as Haman, he was an Edomite from Esau. Both he and Haman tried to hinder the coming of the Messiah. The same spirit today in the Middle East is alive and well, trying to hinder the second coming of Jesus by overtly trying to annihilate all of Israel. And as obsessed was Amman was, that is, with the Jews, so were those who followed the same path. You know, years ago I bought uh, and read Adolf Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. You know, I wanted to see how an evil mind operates. Uh, did you know that Hitler mentions the word Jew or Jewish 534 times in his short book? Okay, he was clearly obsessed and paranoid about the Jews, just like Haman is in Esther. This is when one understands the spiritual dimension of anti-Semitism or eternal hatred of God's people, just like God says in Ezekiel twice concerning the Edomites. And Haman, like Pharaoh in Exodus, who attempted to wipe out the nation, and Hitler recently made anti-Semitism a state-organized annihilation of the Jews, something the prophets of old say that this world leader to come, the Antichrist, will attempt to do just that before the second coming of Christ, as we're going to see in the next sessions. According to scriptures, anti-Semitism will grow to great heights before the second coming, and this is why our Jewish evangelism, we have, we're working very hard, especially in our city, Montreal, where we have about 100,000 Jews there. And there's another side to this story concerning the nation of Israel. Why did God allow this severe wave of anti-Semitism right there at that time? Why did he allow suffering then? We read that the decree went out to all the Jews, and so in chapter 4, verse 3, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Why did God allow this to happen, you know? Perhaps it is because they were not supposed to be there. This may have been a call from God. Sometimes he sends, sends suffering for us to move on. You know, at the time of Esther, because the Jews were the priestly nation, just like the church in a sense, right? We're, there to, we're here to preach the word of God. And so the Jews were not supposed to be, they were, that is supposed to be back in Israel to build the temple and Jerusalem and to prepare it for the first coming of Jesus. Yet Jeremiah the prophet told the Jews that this diaspora would last only 70 years. And this date was past due. Actually, there were 50 years past this date. And so God sends persecution to bring them back. And this part speaks loudly to all believers from all nations. When a believer in Jesus forgets who he is and why God elected him and forgets himself in the world, God will remind us. All the time. Israel could never find happiness away from God. In the same way, the believer who's not working with God could not find it. This is surely a good reason why so many believers cannot find happiness in their life. Because blessings come when we work with God. Now let's go back to the story and see how it unfolds with Haman. Now this man was a very clever man. So he promised that the killing of the Jews would enrich the kingdom of Persia. Look what he says in chapter 3 verse 9. 
He offers payment to the king for killing the Jews. He says he, he would pay him 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work that corresponds to over 333 tons of silver, an enormous amount, which would equal to the total annual tribute paid by the 127 provinces. Where would Haman find this excessive amount of money? This money would have been taken from plundering the Jews, and even though they entered in captivity with nothing, the Lord allowed them to prosper, as he always does, actually. And he is not the only one to have had this idea. History tells us about a similar spirit with the Nazis. According to the World Jewish Congress, the third of the German war effort was paid for with money stolen from Jews. Ministry official robbed an estimated of 120 billion rich mark, which is about 20 billion American dollars, by looting the Jewish people. But it is when the situation seems desperate that we see in the book of Esther, God in action. Again, there's nothing, I want to tell you, like anti-Semitism to attract his attention. This is when God rises for his wife, Israel. You know, we seldom speak of Israel as a wife, but she is often depicted as such, especially in the book of Hosea. The third woman in Esther is the nation of Israel. And God, as her husband, is seen looking after her so intently, as the Spirit says in Proverbs 6:34, for jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the days of vengeance. And here we are about to see him, the husband of Israel, in action. It is right at this point in the book, after Haman decided to kill all the Jews, that God begins to perform some very powerful miracles, even some of the most unusual ones in the scriptures. First, by his grace, Esther was already in a privileged position. She was already in the palace and wife of the king. After learning of the decree to kill all the Jews on the given date, the first thing that Mordechai does is to go to her and ask her to speak to the king in order to save the Jews. At first, Esther resisted, because anyone, even the wife of a king who came to him without being summoned, could be put to death. And she had not been summoned. But being so young and inexperienced, she was afraid. But it is at this point that Mordechai sends her a message. And I want you to notice what he says. Here we go to see his faith. Esther 4.14. He says, If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What he's saying to her is that if Esther did not do anything, God will act anyway to save the Jews through other means. Mordechai was sure that God will never allow such an annihilation, no matter what. But I want to ask you, how did he know that? How did he know that? How did he know that God would surely come to the rescue of the Jews? Because Mordechai knew the word of God. He knew the Bible well. He must have known all these many prophecies of God to Abraham, to Moses, and to all the many prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah who guaranteed the protection of the Jews. He must have known about God's words in Jeremiah when he said that only when the ordinances of the moon, the stars, of the whole creation ceases, this is when God said that the seed, then I will forsake the seed of Israel, which is an impossibility. So he knew for certain that help will come. And second, 
there's something very unusual which occurs beginning in chapter 6. As irrational as anti-Semitism is, so is God's response so extraordinary. Let's go to chapter 6. Right at the beginning of this chapter, we find out that one night, for some unknown reason, the king could not sleep. And something astounding occurs. Look at verse 1. It says, the king, that night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, so they were to read it before the king. By the way, I want to tell you, this comes out of nowhere. Right. How come the king could not sleep, and how did he come to ask to see the records? And what were in these records? One of these recorded incidents happened back in chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, where two persons plotted to kill the king, and guess who uncovered the plot? It just happened to be Mordechai. However, perhaps in the confusion, or in his busy schedule, the king forgot to reward Mordechai. But God, in his perfect omniscience and timing, kept this for a more opportune time. Now suddenly the king remembers. God is in control, isn't he? And so the king sought for the man who saved him so he could reward him. This is just extraordinary. Just when the edict went out to kill all the Jews, he remembered these things. Now see the rest of the story. Right after the king finds out that it was Mordechai who saved him, he was actually wondering how he would reward him. And suddenly, who comes up to the door? His best advisor, Haman. Right? See with verse 6 what it says. So Haman came in and the king asked him what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman says, thought in his heart, whom would he, the king, delight to honor more than myself? He thought it was for himself. <laughs> he thought the king spoke to him, so he gives the best advice, right? In his own power. He advises the king that the person he wants to honor should be dressed in a royal uh, robe and be paraded on, the, on a horseback through the city. So the king thought it was a good idea, so now he tells him, you know who it is for? Mordechai the person he wanted to kill. There must have been laughter in heaven for at least half an hour. <laughs> Do you see how God, God can reverse a situation? Yet, he's not mentioned in this book. But he's there in all these so-called coincidences, right? With God, there's no coincidence, I want to tell you. So Haman, like Ahasuerus before, found him disoriented and lost, and so he goes to his wife, Zeresh for comfort, okay? And what she tells him is something out of this world, something supernatural. By the way, Zeresh is the fourth woman in the book of Esther. She is portrayed as one who stands by her husband, as wicked and silly he may have been. She reminds us of Abigail, <clears throat> the wife of Nabad, right? A man who acted so irrationally, but she saved him anyway. She may also remind us of the wife of Pontius Pilate, who we believe is, her name was Claudia, who advised her husband not to touch the righteous man, Yeshua, Jesus. But Nadab, Pilate, and Hamad had this in common. They did not heed the good words of their lives, really. Now see what Zeresh, along with some of Haman's friends, tell him. Now, this verse is a classic in the history of Israel. One of the most extraordinary verse, right, 
that we can find. Look at chapter 6, verse 13, what she says. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wife, wise men that is, and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordechai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but surely fall before him. This is scriptures. This is quite a statement coming from the mouth of those who were not Jewish, but who had the Jews as captives in their own country and who also hated them. They suddenly changed their minds. And this comes out of nowhere again because just before Zeresh and Hamad's advisor told Haman to make gallows for Mordechai, now they changed their mind. How did this come about? Do you see God's hand in this book? God is present. This is his doing. What they actually are saying is that if you fight the Jews, you will eventually fall. This is the story of Balaam all over again. He wanted to curse the Jews, but remember, he couldn't. He only blessed them. The same happened with Zeresh and Haman's friend. They could not curse the Jews, but instead warned that anti-Semitism will not prevail against Israel, but will surely fall before her. See how far this hidden book brings us. But God has not finished. There's one more situation, the most comical of all. Now, during this time, Esther thought a way to tell the king that she was Jewish, because he did not know, not know yet, and that Haman's decree concerned her as well. So the king was about to learn that Haman was not only planning to kill the man who saved his wife, but also his, his own wife whom he loved. And we remember how sentimental he was. So Esther invited the king and Haman for supper and asked the king for a favor. The king loved her so much that he said to her to ask anything up to half the kingdom. So she says to him, can you save my life and the life of my people? And the king says, what do you mean? Who wants to kill you? And so she said, Haman, this man Haman, right? At this point, the text says that king, well, the king, and listen to this, he was so angry that he could not take it anymore, so he goes outside to the garden to breathe and subside his anger. In the meantime, Haman begs, begs Esther for mercy, and somehow he trips and falls on her, and both are in the couch. And at the same time, the king enters the room, he sees Haman on his wife. I mean... You can, can, it's fun to read the Bible. You know, I want to tell you, you, you cannot find a more comical uh, scene in there. And so furious he is in Esther 7, 8. He says, will you also assault the queen while I am in the house? Right? What a comedy. See how God can turn a serious event into a pleasant one. Okay, this was the end of Amman, by the way. Okay. And so the king's soldiers came and grabbed Haman, and the verse ends by saying, and the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's faith, faiths, that is. This is a common expression found in the scriptures, meaning that he was covered with disgrace. Such would be the end, I believe, of anti-Semitism. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. To conclude, is Israel's condition today really that different from the way it was in the time of Esther? Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, you know, even before the Jews entered the land of Israel, 
He prophesied about a condition in the diaspora. He says, you will get in there, but you know what? You will get out again because you will not follow the law of God. And he said that it will be a byword, an astonishment, or proverbs among all the nations. Now let me give you some information about the pulse of the condition of the nation of Israel today, as is our coming towards the end time. You know, the Jews have a slogan concerning the past Holocaust. They say, never again. Never again. Never would there be such a time of suffering and killing, they say. In a recent article written in April 8th of 2018 in the New York Times, in commemoration of the yearly Holocaust Remembrance Day, the writer wrote these powerful words. This is what he said, listen, he says, today, 70 years later, you have the feeling for the first time that history, the history of the Holocaust, could repeat itself, that it's not out of question. Later, a journalist from the Times of Israel reacting to this article agreed and wrote, never again, followed by three dots, probably now, probably. Here are secular, a secular assessment of the condition of Israel today, and it is powerful, and it fits well with the end-time prophecies, right? Because there's a lot of anti-Semitism as we're going to see in the next sessions. That is the, the first time since the last world war, that words like these are penned down. The possibility of another Holocaust. Yes, it is possible. We're going to see that even the prophets, Zachariah speaks about it, that is coming before the end times. Furthermore, the president of the European Jewish Congress, Moshe Cantor, recently spoke of the resurgence of anti-Semitism, that is, he says it's at its highest level since the Second World War. Are we aware of these things? In the first week of December 2018, a study made in 12 European countries found that 90% of European Jews feel that anti-Semitism is on the increase. We may not feel it here yet, not even in Canada, but they do feel it in Europe. Today, up to 50% of them avoid public events because of safety, and 40% have considered immigrating over safety fears. And propaganda against the Jews is no more confined in the Middle East. It is now normalized on university campuses, in the media, in international government bodies. They call it the new anti-Semitism, the anti-Zionism. This is just another name for it. It is subtle, like the well-disguised hatred called BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions, which is against everything that is Israeli, against everything that is Jewish. This type of anti-Semitism even attracts many Jews, would you believe, who overtly speak against Israel. I believe because they're scared, because they are afraid. Have you noticed the first words of God to Ezekiel in chapter 37? They were given in the form of a question. He said, son of man, can these bones live? These were Israel in the diaspora. Ezekiel, he says, after that, you have seen the sad condition into which these bones are now. Is it possible that they can live? This is the question and the answer the Lord is giving. Yes, it can live. Israel will not only live, it will not only be successful, but the prophet tells us that God's tabernacle shall be with them there in Jerusalem, the city. So many religions today and nations pretend ownership. Then the Lord says, the nation also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Because it will be during the messianic time. Amen? Amen. 
Let us pray. I will pray a part of an ancient Jewish prayer. Let us give praise to God on high. He is blessed and is to be blessed. For no one is like you. You are great in holiness and doing wonderful things. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, and the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God who is great, powerful, and revered, the God most high, the Lord of heaven and earth, our shield, the shield of our fathers, the God who increases our faithfulness in every generation. Blessed are you, O Lord, for you are the shield of Abraham, and you are the shield of everyone who humbles, humbly comes to you with a repentant heart. And to the Lord, we've seen how the action of some disturb you. But there again, you are so loving, so patient, not wanting that anyone should perish. Amen and amen. May the Lord bless you all.